From the unexplained to the mundane, come join us on a journey to the fringe. Hello and welcome to Journey to the Fringe, where affairs of the blackest and highest variety are both discussed and discerned to you, the listener. We are your podcast hosts with pinkies classily, yes, defiantly in the air. Taylor and Chelsea. And today we talk about a group that has had many a conspiracy about it. But today we're going to talk about a real conspiracy, one that is verifiably something that needs to be answered and likely has an answer, but it hasn't been spelled out outright yet. And that group is the United Nations. I thought it was going to be a cult. Yeah, it could have been. But for now, it's going to be the United Nations, which may or may not be a cult. I don't think people have killed themselves in the name of per se, but you know. Let's see what you got. So Chelsea, when I say there are conspiracies about the United Nations, what comes to mind for you? I can't really think of anything at the top of my head. Maybe they're favoring certain countries. I mean, it's it's politics, right? Yeah, more or less. In the end. So you got to believe there's some stuff going on there. I've been listening to too much Knowledge Fight, which is a podcast about Alex Jones and how he's kind of full of shit. It's a a great show. When you see that side of things, they really talk about how they're just the New World Order. They're part of the Economic Forum and just pushing ahead affairs to bring about a changing of the guard to the powers that they want to control. Those are the conspiracies I hear. That is a fantastical way of looking at it. I'm going to show you the very real UN, the conspiracies about it, and why it kind of comes out this way. And how we're going to look at it, we're going to look at the history, not just of the UN, but how the UN comes about, starting with a history from the League of Nations onwards. And then we're going to actually talk about the story that I have here, okay? Okay, that sounds good. Now, I don't know how much of this history you remember. I'm going to give a brief overview when there's a story that might need to be told. But outside of that, we're kind of just trying to stick straight to the story, okay? Okay, where would I remember it from? Like grade 11, grade 12. Nope. <laughs> Nothing. (laughs) Okay. Well, then you are in for a totally new ride. (laughs) You've probably never heard before. (laughs) So strap yourselves in and we're going to get to this. And of course, every talk of the United Nations starts with the League of Nations. We'll get to kind of why. And this, I found a BBC article that kind of outlines the League of Nations and its history very well. So I'm going to follow up for the most part here. The League of Nations, born of the destruction and disillusionment arising from World War One, was the most ambitious attempt that had ever been made to construct a peaceful global order. It was rooted in a comprehensive liberal critique of the pre-war international system, which was widely believed to have been the cause of the carnage of World War One. The story of World War One: a bunch of cousins that got pissed at each other and then Moses they had their family feud. The idea of the League of Nations was to eliminate four flaws of the old European states. It was in place of monarchical family spats, a world independent nation state was emerging and should free of outside interference. The secret diplomacy of the old order would be replaced by the open discussion and resolution of disputes. Those are the first two. Third, the military alliance blocks would be replaced by a system of collective guarantees of security. And four, agreed disarmament would prevent the recurrence of the kinds of arms races that had racked up international tensions in the pre-war decade. Now, there was something that kind of predates the League of Nations, and it's called the Congress system. It was in Europe kind of exclusively. And it was just basically the great powers of Europe held occasional summits where 
they would chat and discuss issues they found urgent. Didn't really do much though. And obviously it read the World War Two, so or World War One. Sorry, spoiler alert, there's a World War Two. Wait, what? <laughs> Sorry, we'll get to that part. <laughs> So the surviving victorious great powers from the end of the Great War, mostly Britain and France, because, you know, Germany kind of didn't survive well in World War Two, World War One. Geez, sorry. We're so used to talking yeah. about World War Two. It's just slip of the tongue. <laughs> I'm following Spoiler alert. Though, surprisingly. They would have preferred to go no further than regularizing the old Congress system. But the reason this old Congress system doesn't end up holding up is because Woodrow Wilson, who was president of the U.S. at the time, is coming on the stage as another power themselves. And he says, we need a new system. He had different ideas and pushed towards the creation of a more comprehensive global organization, which would include an all independent states and in which even the smallest state would have a voice. However, hilariously, Wilson's thinking about the way that self-determination would work in the real world and getting his idea for a community of power off the ground or made really big. Partly, this was to avoid alarming U.S. isolationist opinions, which there was huge U.S. isolationist movements at the time. But in any case, when the League Covenant was agreed to at the Paris Peace Conference in 1919, the U.S. Senate refused to sign it. So the U.S. actually never gets involved with the League of Nations because the Senate never ratifies their involvement. That sounds about right, actually. Just stats. One party doesn't like the other, so they say, no, fuck you, you can't do what you like. <laughs> Just because. And this is clear in the article. How the League would have worked with American participation remains one of the greatest what-ifs of modern history. Mostly because, you know, this leads to World War II, but what would happen if the U.S. was actually involved? As it was, the direction of the system was left in the hands of states, primarily Britain and France, whose altruism was questionable and whose economic resources had been crippled. Yet the League of Nations did work surprisingly well for a decade after the war. By December 1920, 48 states had signed the League Covenant, pledging to work together to eliminate aggression between countries. A series of disputes between Germany and Poland over Upper Silesia. Silesia? Yeah, who knows? I've never heard of that country. Between Italy and Greece, and between Greece and Bulgaria, were resolved under its auspices and these were the kind of conflicts that triggered world war one so good on them the proliferation of league activity however carried risks as one of its founders lloyd george put it it had weak links spreading everywhere no grip anywhere grip ultimately meant the capacity to use force when the crucial concept of collective security was put in the acid test in the 1930s it dissolved once big power started to challenge the status quo as japan did in manchuria the league found it practically impossible to reach a clear verdict on who was guilty of aggression. And we covered that, the Manchurian-Japan issue, in our Japanese war crimes episodes. If you want to hear about that, go back there. Kind of a hilarious story about a fake train incident. Oh, the incidents. There were many incidents in Japan. There's so many. <laughs> Or still more disastrously, in the case of Italy pressuring Abyssinia, Abyssinia would be pre-Ethiopia. That's its name before it became Ethiopia. Mm -hmm. Okay. It was putting pressure on Abyssinia. The guilt was clear enough, but the key powers, Britain and France, were unwilling to antagonize the guilty party because of their wider strategic fears. Italy was the guilty party. They were invading Abyssinia to make it their fault. A failed attempt to impose an oil embargo on Italy demonstrated that any credible system of economic sanctions was far distant between the humiliation of seeing one of its members, Austria, taken over by Germany in 1938 without even a formal protest, and the absurdity of expelling the USSR after the outbreak of World War II in 1939, an event that neither the USSR nor the League was involved. And after this, the League pretty much ceased while World War II happens. 
it's just a mess leading up to World War II. Germany leaves it before the USSR is kicked out because Germany says they want an army. And of course, the World War I agreement to end it says they can't really have a real army. Well, Germany says, screw you, we're going to do it anyways. And they just no recourse. And then the USSR gets kicked out for invading Finland. That vote, there are 15 votes, seven in favor of kicking them out and eight in favor of keeping them. And to even get to seven, they had to randomly add new countries to the vote to get to seven. And they still kicked them out. Yeah, it was super messed up. Okay. So anyways, World War II that happens. We've covered World War II enough around it. We're going to cover the rest of it. As World War II was about to end in 1945, nations were in ruins and the world wanted peace. Representatives of 50 countries gathered at the United Nations Conference on International Organization in San Francisco, California from April 25th to June 26, 1945. For the next two months, they proceeded to draft and then sign the UN Charter, which created a new international organization, the United Nations, which it was hoped would prevent another war like they had just lived through. Four months after the San Francisco conference that I just talked about, the United Nations officially began on October 24th, 1945, when it came into existence after its charter had been ratified by China, France, Soviet Union, United Kingdom, and the U.S., which are the five major powers in the U.N. As of April 20th, 1946, the League of Nations ceased to exist and handed over all of its assets to the U.N., having granted the new UN secretary full control of its library. So that's the history of the League of Nations and how it just kind of naturally flows into the UN. Key difference between the UN and the League of Nations is it was all just kind of a weird agreement between these parties in the League of Nations, whereas in the UN, they have different departments, but most importantly, they have five parties who can just veto it. And they're basically considered the most powerful countries. So if they don't like something, they can just say, no, like we're not going to do this. No matter what it is. And they couldn't do that under the League of Nations? They could not. And that's how it kind of led to the undermining. So is that just like incentive for them not to just leave? To have power over them? Like, or do you mean in the League of Nations situation? Like in the United Nations. Like yeah. how come they could just like veto things? They can just veto things because they have more power in theory than the rest of the countries. But, you know, it's been going on a long time. So it's hard to say if that's still the truth or not. In any event, okay. all countries are involved in the UN, and um, yeah. they've stayed there for a long time, so it's a, it's a little different from that. Okay, and totally not anything to do with the story you're telling, I'm just curious. <laughs> So the structure of the UN was to give much stronger positions to the traditional great powers through the UN Security Council. The most significant thing about its creation, perhaps, is that this time the US did not back away. A significant number of the old league's aims and methods were transmitted into the UN. And among these were not only such low-key but effective institutions of the international courts and the international labor organizations, but also the working assumptions of the Secretariat and some key operations, including those that would soon come to be called the peacekeeping operations. The UN may have almost stumbled sideways into its peacekeeping role, but the motive and sustaining force in the process was the survival and strengthening of the expectations of international involvement in the preservation of global security. Gradually, this came to include the defense of human rights as well as the resolution of territorial conflicts. The UN's first attempt to resolve a serious conflict in Palestine in 1947-48 was unsuccessful, some may even call disastrous, and it failed to implement its own partition plan and its special mediator was assassinated. That's not the story that we're going to be talking about. Oh, wow. But yeah, they still today have not settled down. 
Really? The Palestine-Israel conflict? Yeah. Are they still working on that? or, or did they, No, like... no. Most countries have clearly <laughs> made sides on that. Wildly unsuccessful. Other UN organizations had a shorter but more spectacular life, notably the operation in the Congo from 1960 to 1964. And this is actually what we're going to be talking about today, which prefigured the alarming future of missions to states that were dissolving into civil war. In the Congo, the UN found itself using military force against Katangan rebels to preserve the unity of the state of Congo. A departure from the principle of strict neutrality, which has usually been thought vital to the success of its peacekeeping missions. Dealing with such internal conflict was far more ambitious and demanding task than the traditional role of assisting consenting states to observe the ceasefires. And in effect, it showed that the UN might need to take governmental responsibility in some situations. The development towards taking responsibility in countries at risk of disintegration was due to a dramatic increase in the prestige and initiative of the UN Secretary General. This was particularly true at the time when the position was held by the charismatic Dag Hammarskjöld, and this is the person we're going to be talking to. But before that, I'm just going to give you a few things so that we kind of have a, a bit more stats in view. So the UN currently has 193 member states, its purpose is, is to maintain international peace and security and to promote human rights and to provide a forum for discussion of global issues. The UN system of organizations is comprised of main organs, specialized agencies, programs and funds, research and training institutes, and a variety of affiliated and related. The General Assembly, the Security Council, the Economic and Social Council, the Trusteeship Council, the International Court of Justice, and the UN Secretariat. The Charter of the UN defines the tasks and functions of each organ. The Secretary General is the Chief Administrative Officer of the UN and is elected by the General Assembly. The organization is financed by assessed and voluntary contributions from its member states. So Chelsea, before I begin with my story, any questions about the UN? I don't think so. I think that was fairly clear. Okay. From here, we are going to tell you the story, the tale, if you will, of Dag Hammarskjöld. And is this true or false? This is a very true story. Okay. I wasn't sure because we said conspiracy theory. Okay. Yes, conspiracy theory. Never actually existed. Mm -hmm. Just kidding. He is very real. Okay. So Dag Hammarskjöld was a Swedish economist and diplomat who served as the second Secretary General of the United Nations. As of 2023, he remains the youngest person to have ever held that position. Having been only 47 years old when he was appointed, he is the son of Hjalmar Hammarskjöld, who served as the Prime Minister of Sweden from 1914 to 1917. Hammarskjöld was and remains well regarded internationally as a capable diplomat and administrator, and his efforts to resolve various global crises led to him being the only posthumous recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize. He is considered one of the two best UN Secretary Generals, and sorry, Secretaries General. I hate when they do that. It is pluralized on the first word. Those bastards! Secretaries General. I've never really come across it, I think. Okay. Maybe I have. <laughs> the only other time that comes up is Attorney General of a state or a province. The plural is Attorneys General. Also. There's so many things that don't fucking make sense. So I guess if it's a hyphenated general, it's the first word that is pluralized, and that is why English mm -hmm. is a fucking terrible language. It is. Anyhow, back to this. Yeah. President John F. Kennedy called Hammerskjold the greatest statesman of our century. Immediately following the assumption of the Secretariat, Hammerskjold attempted to establish a good rapport with his staff. He made a point of visiting every UN department to shake hands with as many workers as possible, eating in the cafeteria oh, nice. as often as possible, and relinquishing the uh -huh. Secretary General's private elevator for general use. He began uh -huh. his term by establishing his own Secretariat of 4,000 administrators and setting up regulations that defined their responsibilities. He was also actively engaged in smaller projects relating to the UN working environment. For 
example, he spearheaded the building of a meditation room at the UN headquarters where people can withdraw into themselves in silence regardless of their faith, creed, or religion. So he just sounds like a really nice guy. You know? Yeah, this is why he won the Nobel Peace Prize, right? <laughs> sounds so nice. Yes. <laughs> During his term, Haverskill tried to improve relations between Israel and the Arab states, a task that he clearly succeeded at, because, you know, just mm -hmm. look at that history. He lives so peacefully now. Other highlights included a 1955 visit to China to negotiate the release of 11 captured U.S. pilots who served in the Korean War. And in 1956, he established the U.N. Emergency Force and used this in the intervention in the 1956 Suez Crisis which I forgot to do a little bit of look into, but that's okay. doesn't have too much to do with this. Okay, I'll accept that. <laughs> in 1960, this is where we're getting to it. The newly independent Congo asked for UN aid in defusing the Congo crisis. Hammerskjold made four trips to the Congo, but his efforts toward the decolonization of Africa were considered insufficient by the Soviet Union, which I find pretty rare that you're going to see a Wikipedia article where the USSR comes off as the good guy, where they're like, hey, you're not taking enough steps to decolonize Africa. I feel like that's not a bad position. No, it's not. It actually kind of makes the guy look real bad. Yeah. <laughs> In September of 1960, the Soviet government denounced his decision to send UN emergency forces to keep the peace. Wow. They demanded his resignation and the replacement of the Office of Secretary General by a three-man directorate with a built-in veto called the Troika. The objective was citing the memoirs of Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev to equally represent the interests of three groups of countries, capitalists, socialists, and recently independent. So, outside of that, I'm now going to give you a little bit of info on the Congo crisis. Okay, that would be great. So, Congo was a colony of Belgium, and boy, how did they fuck it up hard. I find most colonies are fucked up pretty good. Yes, but this one in particular, how do I New put level this? of fucked up? Yeah, of a population of roughly 30 million, Belgium killed 10 million people through disease, through execution, through famine. And this is a oh wild God. estimate because it's anywhere from 1.3 to 13 million people that died during the Belgian rule of the Congo. There's actually a very famous picture you can find of a father sitting on a porch looking down at the hand and foot of his son because he was unable to gather enough rubber for his quota for the day. So they chopped off his son's hand and leg. Oh my God, what? Is this it? Oh my God, that's really just... I can't even look at that colonizers are like awful in anything I've ever heard about them. And they're just kind of glossed over for the most part, I find. We tend to focus on World War One and World War Two, and not the colonizing that took place around that time as well. Oh, absolutely. Okay, that's the Super dark picture. time. Population decreased by 20%. That's crazy. Anyhow, oh 1960s, Congo finally gains its independence. Belgium's a little unhappy with the situation, but whatever it is what it is. The Republic of Congo became independent from Belgium in June of 1960, the new country immediately descended into a political chaos known as the Congo Crisis. The arbitrary boundaries drawn by colonial powers combined with leftover racial tensions and general uncertainty led to violence along racial lines and widespread mutiny in the Belgian-led army. Belgian troops sent in to protect Belgian citizens clashed with Congolese forces, leading to the UN ordering the Belgian forces out of the country. On July 11th of 1960, less than two weeks after the country formally gained independence, a politician named Moese Deschambe declared the southernmost province of the Congo to be an independent nation called the state of Katanga. Katanga, with its copper belt and lucrative mining operations, was the wealthiest province 
Katanga. The Belgians, French, and British, wanting influence in the wealthy region, supported the Katanga movement in practice, if not in name. Despite UN regulations forbidding countries from directly supporting secessionists, members of the European armed forces became hired mercenaries in Katanga's army. Patrice Lumumba, Prime Minister of the Congo, appealed to the UN for forces to end the secessionist movement. The UN initially refused, considering the rebellion an internal issue. Patrice Lumumba had managed to acquire Soviet weapons for the Congolese army before he was deposed as Prime Minister by Mobuto Sese Seko in November 1960 and killed in early 1961. This led the UN to pass Resolution 161, which authorized UN forces to take all appropriate measures to prevent civil war in the Congo. This essentially authorized the UN to take defensive measures against the Katanga state. The conflict came to a close in January of 1963 after UN and US forces overwhelmed the Katanga military and Moez Tshembe stepped down as president of Katanga. The UN sent nearly 20,000 peacekeepers to restore order in the Congo, Kinshasa, region. Hammerskold's refusal to place peacekeepers in the service of Lumumba's constitutionally elected government provoked a strong reaction of disapprovals from the Soviets, as we talked about earlier. And the situation will become more scandalous in the assassination of Lumumba by Tshombe's troops. In February of 1961, the UN authorized the peacekeeping forces to use military force to prevent civil war, and the Blue Helmet's attack on Katanga caused Tshombe to flee to Zambia. Hammerskjold's erratic attitude in not providing support to Lumumba's government, which had been elected by popular vote, drew severe criticism among aligned countries and communist and socialist countries. In the end, his actions were supported by the United States and Belgium in how it was going. Oh, huh. Yeah, they quite liked it. On September 18, 1961, Hammerskjold was en route to negotiate a ceasefire between the United Nations operations in Congo forces and the Katangese troops under Moise Tshombe. His Douglas DC-6 airline, SEBDY, crashed near Ndola, northern Rhodesia, now Zambia. Hammerskjold perished as a result of the crash, as did all 15 of the passengers on board. Hammerskjold's death set off a succession crisis at the UN, as there was no line of succession and the Security Council had to vote on a successor. In 1962, a Rhodesian inquiry concluded that pilot error was to blame, while later UN investigation could not determine the cause of crash. And this is where it gets interesting, Chelsea. So, Hammerskjold, dead plane crash. Another thing that I never realized was the UN has an army. They have peacekeepers. They use them all the oh, time. It doesn't seem very peacekeeping-like what they're doing. Yeah, in this situation, they were used with force, which is actually pretty rare for a UN involved. Okay, so guys dead in a plane crash. I'm kind of all over the place here, but I feel like I'm following it. Okay, good. <laughs> and Rhodesia said it was pilot error that caused it. Okay, totally believable, I'm sure. Then... CIA comes out and actually says it was the KGB that was responsible. The Soviet Union did. No. And then the day after the crash, now former president at the time, not not now, but at the time he was the former U.S. president, Harry Truman, commented that Hammerskjold, quote, was on the point of getting something done when they killed him. Notice what I said, when they killed him, end quote. The KGB. Yeah, he's clearly emphasizing the KGB. <laughs> okay. And then in okay. 1998, Documents surfaced suggesting the CIA, MI6, and or Belgian mining interests involvement. 
via a South African paramilitary organization. The information was contained in a file from the South African National Intelligence Agency turned over to the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission in relation to the 1993 assassination of Chris Hani, leader of the South African Communist Party. These documents included an alleged plot to, quote, remove, end quote, Hammer School and contained a supposed statement from CIA director at the time, Alan Dulles, that, quote, Dag is becoming troublesome and should be removed, end quote. Hmm. Hammer School's mission to end the war over the mineral-rich Katangi's secession from the newly formed Republic of Congo was contrary to the interests of those organizations. However, these documents were copies rather than originals, precluding substantiation or authenticity through ink and paper testing. So those papers come to light 30 years, 35 years after this crash actually takes place. What? And they were fake? No, it's not necessarily fake. They couldn't verify it because they weren't originals. Oh, okay, that's what you, okay. Then, in 2014, newly classified documents reveal that the American ambassador to the Congo sent a cable to Washington, D.C. warning that the plane could have been shot down by Belgian military pilot Jan Van Rizigam. Oh my god. Commander of the small Katanga Air Force. Van Rizigam died in 2007. On March 16, 2015, UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon appointed members to an independent panel of experts to examine new information related to Hammerschool's death. The three members panels were led by Mohammed Chande Othman, the Chief Justice of Tanzania, and included Karen McCauley, Australia's representative to the International Civil Aviation Organization, and Henrik Larsen, a ballistic expert on the Danish National Police. The panel released a 99-page report on July 6, 2015, and assigned moderate value to nine new eyewitness accounts and transcripts of radio transmission. Those accounts suggested that Hammerskjold's plane was already on fire as it landed and that other jet aircraft and intelligence agents were nearby. What? So their report found that as the plane was going down, it was already on fire and there were other planes in the vicinity as it was going down. In 2016, the original documents from the 1998 South African investigation surfaced, and those familiar with the investigation cautioned that even if authentic, the documents would have been initially authored as part of a disinformation campaign. So it turned out those documents from earlier were real, but maybe they were made fake at the time. Who knows? (laughs) Why are these all coming to light so long after? They all came to light due to the assassination of the leader of the Communist Party of South Africa in 1998. Oh, okay. You did say that. Yes, okay. And all this starts to kind of domino out because of it. Mm-hmm. And in 2019, the documentary film Cold Case Hammerskjold by Danish filmmaker Mads Brugger claimed that Jan van Rizigum had told a friend that he shot down Hammerskjold's aircraft. <laughs> That's that guy from earlier. This went against the official stance maintained by von Rizigum's family that he was not involved in the death of Hammerskjold. According to an interview with Rizigam's wife, he was in Rhodesia negotiating the purchase of a plane for the Katanga Air Force, with the logbooks providing proof that he was not flying for Katanga at the time. The documentary crew interviewed multiple colleagues of Van Rizigam for the film, all of whom supported his, their theory. In an interview with Swedish historian Leif Elström, Van Rizigam claimed that he was not in South Africa at the time the crash happened, and dismissed the idea of his being potentially involved in fairy tales. Previously unpublished documents continue to emerge from the UN or National Archives, one found in France amidst the Fonds Folkart, National Archives in Pierrefette. In November of 2021, they found a death warrant for Hammerskjold signed by the infamous OAS, the secret organization nestled in the French army at the time of the Algeria's war independence. So the French army had a death warrant out for Hammerskjold at the time. 
The document reads, quote, It is high time to put an end to his harmful intrusion. This sentence common to justice and fairness to be carried out as soon as possible, end quote. <laughs> the source was revealed by French journalist Maureen Picard. And I just need to make this clear. The reason Belgium and everybody supported Katanga is because it's a small region with all of the mineral wealth in Congo. And they found a convenient dictator who would just let them do what they want with these resources. Belgium's mm, happy. Okay. France is happy. The U.S. is very happy with that situation. And that's why yeah. they were on the Katanga side for separation. Okay. And this is an article, I'm just going to read certain key points from it, because I found it fantastic, called Dag Hammarskjöld's Plane Crash, What Really Happened to the UN Chief, from ForeignPolicy.com. Investigators fear they are running out of time to get to the bottom of what happened. Key witnesses from the time period are dying off, and the UN inquiry, led by former Tanzanian Chief Justice Mohamed Chande Althian, is set to conclude in September without having established conclusively the circumstances of how the plane crashed. Othman has been investigating the case on and off for the UN since March 2015. I believe the year is 2022 on this one. It might be 2020. Over the years, Othman has amassed, quote, significant amount of evidence, end quote, including the testimony of African eyewitnesses suggesting foul play was largely ignored by early investigators in the 1960s. That goes against claims by British colonial authorities in northern Rhodesia at the time that Hammersfield's death was an accident. Othman has explored a theory that a mysterious aircraft may have either fired on Hammersfield's plane or harassed the pilot, causing it to crash, or even that the plane had been sabotaged by South African mercenaries, allegedly with the aid of CIA and other Western intelligence agencies. The CIA had previously denied involvement in the agency's operations the last. Othman said in his two previous reports, issued in 2007 and 2019, that the burden of proof was on member states to demonstrate that they had conducted a thorough review of their records and archives, particularly from their intelligence agencies. Quote, the continued non-disclosure of potentially relevant new information in the intelligence, security, and defense archives of member states constitutes the biggest barrier to understanding the full truth on the event, end quote, Othman wrote in 2017 report. So he's trying to get all the evidence he can, and no parties that he thinks are involved are cooperating in having them. Yeah, it seems like everybody kind of wanted him. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to talk about this at the end, because that's the part I but find so weird about it. Weren't there eyewitnesses that saw other planes, or was that just a document altogether that was... No, there are, and um, they are in the uh, official reports sent to the UN. There are three official reports done by Austin. And we'll get to that later. That there are other aircraft. Yes. Okay. The government of Zimbabwe, Zambia, and the Democratic Republic of the Congo have appointed high-ranking figures, including Sidney Sekaramayi, a former Zimbabwean defense minister, to oversee the search for documents and have provided full access to their archives. Belgium, France, and Sweden have also granted extensive access to their security files, but the U.S. and Britain have been less forthcoming appointing relatively low-level officials to manage the search for relevant evidence and releasing the occasional confirmation of evidence brought to them by the UN. A Rhodesian commission of inquiry found that the pilot had miscalculated the height of the tree line and plowed into the forest canopy, the official story from the original time. The subsequent UN inquiry could not establish the cause of the crash, leaving open the possibility that Hammersfield could have died either as a result of an accident or foul play. Eyewitnesses in the area recall seeing a small plane 
approached the Albertina before there was a bright flash in the sky, and then watching a flaming aircraft plunge into the forest, instantly killing everyone on board, except the delegation's acting chief security officer, Harold Julian, who died from his injuries nearly a week later. Before his death, Julian, a former U.S. Marine, suggested a threat or attack as the plane approached Nadola, possibly involving a sudden explosion, according to Offman's report. Quote, this evidence was augmented in 2018-19 by information from Zimbabwe that showed that northern Rhodesian authorities had tried to stifle those statements of Julian from being made public, end quote, Offman wrote in 2019. Offman has cited documents indicating that British officials had intervened behind closed doors to persuade the UN to alter the conclusion of the report to rule sabotage or an external attack. In 1992, two of Hammerskill's top advisors, Connor Cruz O'Brien and George Ivan Smith, wrote in The Guardian that they had evidence that their boss's plane had been shot down by accident by mercenaries in the employ of Belgian, American, and British mining interests, which feared Hammerskill's peacemaking would jeopardize their business interests. Goran Bjorkdal, a Swedish national whose father worked in the region, began researching the UN chief's death and conducting interviews with local charcoal makers who had witnessed Albertina's final descent. Rhodesian and UN investigators at the time largely dismissed the testimony of local black and African witnesses. The case received a boost when Susan Williams, a British scholar who grew up in Zambia, revisited the crime, unearthing previously unseen documents from the archive papers of Lord Cuthbert Alport, who was the British High Commissioner of Rhodesia in 1961, and who was at the Nadola airport on the night in crash, including a secret report by Neil Ritchie, an MI6 agent who organized the planned meeting between Hammerskjold and Tshambe. Williams' 2011 book, Who Killed Hammerskjold? The UN, the Cold War, and white supremacy in Africa helped spur the establishment a year later of the Hammerskjold Commission, a voluntary body of international jurists and lawyers chaired by the British judge, Stephen Sedley. Williams has since fed documents to the UN investigators. Quote, The response of the US and the UK to Judge Offman have been appalling and arrogant. End quote. Williams told foreign policies in an email, quote, But they are entirely consistent with the behavior of those states at the time of the crash, when Britain was the colonial and racist ruler of northern Rhodesia, and the U.S. was interfering in the process of decolonization in Africa, end quote. I shouldn't end quote. Both the U.K. and the U.S. stated that all relevant information had been made available, but this was not true in either case, end quote. The Hammerskill Commission concluded in its final 2013 report, quote, there is persuasive evidence that the aircraft was subjected to some form of attack or threat as it circled to land at Nadola, end quote. It is also concluded that it is highly likely that the entirety of the local and regional Nadola radio traffic on the night of September 17, 18, 1961, was tracked and recorded by the NSA and possibly also by the CIA. Of course it was. These findings prompted the UN General Assembly in 2015 to adopt a resolution calling on then UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon to create a panel of experts to examine the case and determine whether there was enough evidence to merit further investigation. At the time of Hammersfield's death, the United States and Britain had extensive intelligence assets in the region, including CIA agents and NSA surveillance capabilities. But much of what the UN has learned about US activities in the region has come from independent researchers, private archives, or other governments. Othman has asked the US 
to provide access to intercepts or other evidence of communications from Hammerskill's plane or other U.S. aircrafts in the area at the time of the crash. On the night of the crash, there were at least three U.S. planes, including U.S. Navy and Army attaches aircrafts, equipped with the state-of-the-art surveillance equipment at the airport in Medola. One of the U.S. intelligence officials, Carl Southall, recalled in the interviews having overheard intercepts of a known European mercenary pilot nicknamed the Lone Ranger shooting Hammerskill's plane. And the U.S. ambassador to Congo, Edmund A. Guillaume, sent a report to Washington on the day Hammerskill was killed, stating that the plane may have been shot down. Now that's convenient. The historical records strongly suggest that governments, including the U.S., which had a presence in the and around the Congo region at the time, may hold such evidence. Othman wrote in an annex to his 2019 report. But the U.S. has provided limited confirmation for years. Washington denied that Paul Abra, a former U.S. Air Force Security Service officer who also overheard transmissions of an attack the night of the crash, worked for the United States, only acknowledging his links to the U.S. intelligence after he furnished American officials with his government identification. So they are absolutely not involved in this conversation, all giving absolutely minimal information, as it's clearly shown. Yeah, and they are pointing the blame at someone else. Oh, they're just saying we don't have anything. We don't know what happened. I don't know. But they said the Lone Ranger was there. No, somebody did. Somebody who worked for the government. But they say they have none of those records or that they can even confirm that guy worked for the Oh, okay. I misunderstood. I thought that was them being like, oh, yeah, all our planes were there and we definitely could like pick some stuff no, up. No, they're like, oh, look, you don't have any There's records. This other plane and that guy that was there is like, no, we have those records. Like, we don't even know you work for us. <laughs> A spokesperson for the U.S. State Department said the United States takes offense inquiry seriously and, quote, shares his interest in understanding the circumstances of the death of Secretary General Dick Hammerstein, end quote. I cannot end quote there. Over the years, the U.S. has shared over a thousand pages of previously classified documents with the U.N. investigators, end quote. The spokesperson said, speaking on condition of anonymity. The Office of the Director of National Intelligence and the official added, quote, they conducted yet another exhaustive search of the U.S. intelligence archives and did not find any additional information that would shed light. So they're saying that they've turned everything over they possibly could. Was there a wink at the end? You can't see that because it's written yeah. down. It was super sarcastic how they were saying it. <laughs> British Amardouchian colonial intelligence officials were also intercepting communications suggesting that they were pertinent clues buried in their own archives. Othman is seeking access to documents describing the activities of Ritchie, the MI6 agent, and other British officials who were tasked with organizing a meeting between Hammerskill and Deschambault. Othman also sought information about a Belgian mercenary pilot, Jan van Rijsegen, whose name has keeps coming up, who had served in the British Royal Air Force during World War II and is alleged to be a colleague to have admitted to flying the plane that brought down Hammerskill's aircraft. Pierre Coppin, a colleague of the Belgian pilot, asserted in the documentary Cold Case Hammerskill that Van Rizigam was known as the Lone Ranger. This is where we're going to talk about him. Othman is also seeking information from the South African government about an alleged plot by paramilitary group known as the South African Institute for Maritime Research, which, man, for a terrorist group, that is a weird name <laughs> their plan was to assassinate Hammerskill by placing a bomb in his plane before it left the airfield in leopoldville now the congolese capital of kinshasa en route to nadola in a march 2019 letter to south africa often said he understood that the south african government had located documents detailing the plan dubbed operation celeste that came earlier with the cia but that those documents have never been shared with the u.n and this last little bit is on jan van Rizigam. And he has been named as a possible attacker before, but has always described simply as a Belgian pilot. 
And this comes from the observer. So the observer can now reveal that he had extensive ties to Britain, including a British mother and wife, trained with the RAF and was decorated by Britain for his services in the Second World War. Von Rizigum, whose father was Belgian, escaped occupied Europe at the start of the war to join the resistance in England. He trained with the RAF and flew missions over Nazi-held areas during this period. He met and married his British wife, cementing a lifelong connection. For decades, Von Rizigum appeared to have proof that he wasn't flying in the region on the night of Hammersfield's plane. The Albertina came down outside Medola in Zambia and then called Northern Rhodesia. Flight logs, meticulous records of where and when he flew, appear to show Van Rizigam was not flying for most of that month, returning to duty only on September 20th. However, Roger Brackham, another mercenary flying for the Katangis, told filmmakers that his colleagues' logbooks are dotted with apparent forgery. He does not believe that Van Rizigam shot down Hammersfield, but when asked in an interview for the film if he considered the logbook fake, he responds, quote, I won't say, but I didn't recognize the story it told. He leafed through the book. He later directly accuses Von Rizigam of forgery. Quote, this is fake, end quote. Rocco says bluntly, one flight destination, and goes on to add that some of the names listed for co-pilots are not real. A friend has also come forward to claim that less than a decade after Hammersfield's death, Van Rizigam told him he had attacked the plane. Pierre Coppins met Van Rizigam in 1965 when he was flying for a parachute training center in Belgium. Over several conversations, he claimed the pilot detailed how he overcame various technical challenges to down the plane and where who was traveling. Quote, he did not know. He said, I made the mission and that's all. And then I had to go back and save my life. And that's the end of that. So there's definitely a conspiracy. But the thing is, oh, for sure, there are so many that it's hard to actually say which one's the one that happens. <laughs> was it the British that shot him down? Was it the CIA? Was it Von Rizigam? It was probably Von Rizigam. But as it was going down, did the South Africans blow it up? It could be all of them. <laughs> and this is still going on as of today. Yeah. Othman's report came out in 2022. It's called the Othman's Imminent Persons Report. And I found a few key quotes from it I just wanted to highlight. There's three paragraphs, so it won't take long. As mandated, I have also sought to draw conclusions from the investigations already conducted. As in 2019, I assess that it remains plausible that an external attack or threat was a cause of the crash. However, it is not reasonable to reach a conclusion as to the cause of the tragic event based on presently available but incomplete information. This is because material information that appears to have been created or held by member states remains disclosed. Undisclosed. I was just going to say disclosed. Did I miss Remain We solved the mystery. In March 2020 and subsequently, I sent requests for information to the four key member states that have been identified in 2019 that were urged by the Assembly to engage further with the process of disclosing relevant records. They are the Russian Federation, South Africa, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and the United States of America. The 2017 and 2019 report concluded that the burden of proof had shifted to certain member states to show that they had conducted a full review of records and archives in their custody or possession. I respectfully submit that the burden of proof to conduct a full review of records and archives resulting in full disclosure has not been discharged at present time. Indeed, information received from other sources under the present mandate underscores that it is almost certain that these member states created, held, or were otherwise aware of specific and important information regarding the cause of the tragic event. That information is yet to be disclosed. Yeah, obviously. And that is the story of the assassination of Dave Hammerskjold. What do you think? I don't fucking know. If you want to keep up to date on it, 
there is literally a website called hammersfueledinquiry.info where you can learn more about this and keep up to date with the most recent findings. There is literally news updates. The last one being July 19th of 2023. Well, they certainly picked the name that everybody could spell just All the streets could spell it, yeah. <laughs> and like, it is definite there was foul play involved, but there are so many bad actors that are not helping in the story that clearly has some sort of involvement that is hard to actually say the actual story that took place. Well, it's always funny when there's just bad story and cover-up, when it's like obvious that something's going on. And it seems to happen in so many of these conspiracy things that you're just like, we can tell that something's going on. And then people who are like, there's no conspiracy are like, well, why would it be that bad? Like, And there's no question there's a conspiracy here. The literal paper to the UN about this says, I don't know what happened because people won't give me the records. All I know is there was foul play. But, but the problem happened. is, is like, okay, Yan shot him down. Okay, then why is the U.S. not handing over records? Did they pay him? Were they involved yeah, in setting it exactly. up? exactly. But then, why did France have this contract to kill out on Hammersfield? And then, why are there records showing that the South African group blew up the plane? That's why I say everyone's involved. We may never know, because even the guy said we're coming up to the point where everyone's going to be dead. Yeah, but like, these are the actual conspiracies about the UN. They aren't some secret organization that's controlling everything from behind. Like, they're very clearly a bureaucratic thing that can't do much. Yeah. These are the real stories that you need to look at. And this is the real bad actors on that level that need to be looked at. Are the people who are involved yeah. on that side and still won't turn over their record. But they're probably all guilty. Oh yeah, <laughs> there's a reason they're not turning over their records. So can't the UN do, do they have no recourse? No, because it involves, of the four countries that won't hand over records, three of them are part of the Security Council and have veto power. So like, what are they going to do? There's always some way around things for... For the powerful, yes. Yeah, for the powerful to commit atrocities. Yeah. Okay, I'm not really sure what to comment here. That was a good one. It's a very real conspiracy without an answer to this day. Because there's so many possible <laughs> and, and yet still, all of them could be right at the same time. I know, that is the really weird part. All of them seem very plausible and you can make it fit. So that's why I rest with all of them. It all happens. It's all of them. And they probably, the, yeah, the, I... Oh, there was a French assassin on the plane as it was getting shot down in the South African border. That's... Couldn't they have, like, all got together and been like, let's hire this guy and then we'll all just cover for each that, other? They could have. They won't turn over the damn yeah. records. Then it's like that one where who drew the short straw? Nobody knows. So then they all just, like, they'll never know. I thought the whole point of drawing straws was so that you knew who drew the short straw. The long straw? Is it that nobody knows? What? No, Hold are on. you talking about blanks in the rifle? Yeah, 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 that one. You knew the one I was trying to get in. So when you're assassinating somebody by a gunfight uh, or firing a squad. Yeah, yeah, that one. There's only a few active bullets and there's at least one blank so that nobody knows who actually fired the killing round. Yeah, that's a good theory, right? I, I mean, it's not terrible and like just as yeah, plausible as anything it. else, except <laughs> For pilot error. Unless you count the fact that a dead pilot can make errors and not piloting a crashing plane. Well, I mean, he's making all errors, technically. Yeah. Should have been alive.
<laughs> yeah, it's the first rule of flying a plane. It really is. They will not put a dead man in the pilot seat. <laughs> they will not. Unless you believe the 9-11 theories. But that's a whole other thing that we will not touch for a while. <laughs> Having said that, Chelsea, do you have anything else to say? No, I don't think I can really particularly add anything on that other than it's always refreshing when you get kind of like a non-crazy conspiracy theory even though we're just getting off one that's very i feel like we've crazy. been progressing from you know we went through the surfo story we went through britney spears and now a very grounded story it, it's yes. a really nice i can't to wait to see what we have next well speaking of that i have been taylor here with chelsea we are journey to the fringe thank you all for listening and we will see you next week with whatever less crazy story we may have okay bye Thank you for listening to Journey to the Fringe. If you have liked what you have listened to, please like, share, subscribe, or follow, depending on what venue you are listening to us through. Also, please, if possible, leave a five-star review, as that really helps us in the algorithms. Should you wish to interact with us, please check us out on your social media of choice. I bet you we are there. And if you really want to communicate with us and give us ideas for new episodes, or tell us that we're wrong and terrible, either way, please send us an email at journeytothefringe at gmail.com. For now, I'll see you in the next episode. Uh